The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the ironic paradoxical elements of being in this field is that despite the fact that uh, we make excellent party talk when we uh, go to an event and tell people that we're archaeologists and everybody comes up to you and they say almost invariably, you know, I've always wanted to, to, to be an archaeologist. I was always interested in dinosaurs. And it sort of it, it takes off. It, it takes takes on an, an, a unique character from there and you start to explain things about the difference between paleontology, archaeology, and uh, eventually it gets down to storytelling and you tell people what your most intriguing adventures are as an archaeologist and it, it's wonderful and, and it's very exciting but in fact a lot of archaeology is simply hard science and recounting and uh, discussing elements of science that ultimately lead to discussions of how we got to where we are, the emergence of the human condition. And in many cases, ironically, as I said earlier, it's, it's, it's not the most exciting element of discussion if you get into the specific details of archaeology. But by and large, it is a very interesting uh, discipline. And my guest today is a specialist because he is a science journalist, and it is his business to make these topics that, as I said before, are rigorous science. It's his uh, job to turn them into interesting discourse and to cast them into situations where there's a, uh, an interest among the general public. Uh, my guest is Samir Patel. He is a science journalist, photographer, and an editor based uh, in this area in Brooklyn, New York. In addition to his full-time work as deputy, deputy editor at Archaeology Magazine, his work has appeared in Nature, The New York Times, Discover Magazine, and a variety of other publications. He has reported from all over the world, from India, the South Pacific, Tanzania, Brazil, Australia, and elsewhere. And he's covered a wide range of topics, including climate change, art conservation, neuroscience, chemistry, and uh, a variety of related and unrelated scientists. He is an adjunct professor of journalism at Columbia Journalism School and an accomplished editor of art publications. It's my pleasure to welcome Mr. Samir uh, Patel to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Joe. I appreciate it. Samir, tell us how you got interested in archaeology and how you uh, developed a specialization in transmitting the message of archaeology to a more general public. Sure. Well, I uh, began my career uh, as a science journalist. In fact, I didn't have any uh, official academic background in, in archaeology at all. But to a large extent, the um, the same tenets that apply to um, 
to our, our reporting in any field, any, any form of science or any other thing, um, still apply to writing about archaeology. So when I first started here at Archaeology Magazine, I, I was a freelance journalist before that, and um, an editor position opened up here. Um, I knew there would be a learning curve, and indeed there was, but um, uh, it was the, the, the basics of journalism and the rigor that comes into both archaeology and journalism that provided, at least for me, a really familiar touchstone uh, that I was able to uh, grow uh, off of. One of the interesting things, as I touched upon in my introduction to the program, is that we as archaeologists since we are so surrounded by the little minutia of what we do, we have a tendency very often to make a very interesting topic quite boring. And I'm sure you've come across that. How do you change that? How do you change that perception of uh, what archaeologists actually do on a daily basis to something that grabs the attention of the public? Well, in our experience as journalists and as communicators that interface with both worlds, I think that uh, those of us here on the archaeology staff or people that specialize in running archaeology start to realize what the specific things are about the field that really appeal to the general public. Um, and so the way that we, we bring those things forward and, and build narratives around them um, to make them uh, widely accessible and something that you know opens people's eyes a little bit uh, is part of the job. So one, for example, one of the things that we found in our experience is the special sauce that makes an archaeology story work is uh, how people are so intrigued by uh, just how dynamic history can be in a sense of we think we know a lot about a subject and uh, indeed archaeology can come along and continue to revise what we think about history. There's a sense of mystery and surprise that come with that. Um, people also make very personal connections with archaeology. Um, the, the, Lauren Isley, the anthropologist and writer, had written about the, 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 the humanly touched thing, the melancholy secret of the humanly touched thing, the idea that there is some connection across the, the, the decades, the centuries, the millennia, when um, these, these artifacts, these, these things are involved. So when we build our stories, we tend to start with we, we, we lead with the dirt, you know, we begin with the site and the objects and then build a narrative around that and have found in our experience that it really uh, it makes these stories special and really appealing to, to the general public. I think you're right about that. I remember when mm -hmm. I started and a lot of my colleagues started, I think it was actually the very tangible act of touching something that was last touched, say, hundreds, even thousands of years ago that creates a certain fascination and your ability to convey that fascination to the general public is really the idea that keeps people very, very intrigued. I'm just curious, uh, in your experience, what particular stories or what particular uh, developments in our field are ones that have elicited especially uh, large interest among the general public are there are there particular topics or particular areas of discovery that you you have seen are ex unusually appealing? There are certain broad subjects that are always going to have an appeal among the general public. Things like Egypt or the ancient Maya or the classical world in general. So these things are always going to have appeal. Vikings, for example, um, are always going to have appeal to to the general public. But often uh, it's dependent on the story that we're telling in terms of what's really going to um, to engage a new audience. So, for example, there was a story that I wrote uh, just this past year that really struck a chord. With It is available online uh, with the online community, and it ended up being the most sort of trafficked story for us of the year. And it wasn't about any of those subjects. It was actually about a... Um, a uh, uh, a slave trading ship that had uh, uh, wrecked on an island in the Indian Ocean, and the uh, French sailors then reconstructed the uh, 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 the boat into a rescue vessel, and they left, leaving behind 80 surviving slaves to, from Madagascar. And the archaeologists involved there uh, had gone to this this island called Trommelin Island in the Indian Ocean, and excavated the site where these slaves stayed. Uh, for the 15 years that actually they waited uh, for rescue, and there was uh, when we put this uh, this story on our uh, Facebook feed, it was it was hugely popular, and people were really moved by the emotional connections that arose in the story because there was 
for example, a Malagasy archaeologist involved in the dig who had some really strong feelings about what it was like to sort of excavate the uh, uh, this, this place of, of survival and hope and desperation all in one place. So sometimes it can be something as simple as a real strong emotional connection that can make one sure. of these stories really sing. And I think uh, based uh, certainly on my own experience, very often if you interject your own perspective on it and you look at it from the perspective of a professional, you will also elicit a certain amount of response and, and a personal connection. I find that, that there's nothing more important than a personal connection to what you're finding that will get this type of response from the public. In that vein, how has uh, social media revolutionized uh, people's perceptions of archaeology, and what is the tangible difference? Because you're part of a group that has witnessed probably some kind of transformation here, because I assume you, you go back to the era of, uh, at least slightly before the era of social media. Uh, we actually, the magazine Archaeology goes back well before the era of social media. Oh, no, media. I know, the magazine does. But you yourself, in your position as editor... Um, yeah, well, you know, the the social media world is a, is an interesting one. Obviously, it's appealing to a, a new and different audience. You know, different people consume information in different ways. So while there is still, and I believe there always will be, a, a place for our print magazine and other print magazines, um, there is a whole other set of people that we're able to reach with social media. So our social media and online components um, are run and executed by our incredible online editor, Eric Powell. And in just two years since we've been doing that, we went from 35,000 followers on Facebook um, to 1.3 million. Uh, wow. And that's, and, and that's, and that's there, there's no you know, specific promotion involved in that. That's based purely on the content. Um, and we also see rates of engagement. Uh, with the, that's what they call the, the shares of, of, of these social media stories um, are incredibly high. Uh, compared to a lot of other uh, uh, publications, so in the in the social media realm, we you know we go with the same philosophy, just as we do in the magazine. We we start with the material, the stuff, and that's the thing that the people connect with. Um, and so we see the most common uh, comment on every one of these posts is, "Wow, you know, we thought we knew it all," or "Boy, I really love archaeology." So there's a way. That, I mean, the, the revolution is really in terms of how you connect with people and connecting with a larger group of people, and we've seen, I think, really great success with that, and that's, that's just going to continue um, across archaeology as, as a field, that direct contact with readers. But in that same connection, I mean, there has been a trend for the print media as we know it to sort of recede into the background as social media and the internet take on a much larger profile and drive the nature of communication into different spheres. Are you afraid or can you see a trend in which publications like yours will, uh, if not necessarily lose their relevance, then certainly have to modify their objectives with the times and reconfigure themselves to a different uh, public? Well, certainly anyone in the magazine world has uh, observed and, and felt this concern about what the future of, of print publications are, as many uh, sometimes venerable print publications uh, fall by the wayside. We're not in that position necessarily because our numbers as a print magazine remain strong. Um, and I think the, the, the product that we produce, the combination of the design, the art, the text, is still very appealing. So we haven't actually uh, been affected directly by uh, the drop in readership that a lot of people have. But what we certainly see in social media is something purely complementary to what we do. Um, there's, uh, there's not as many opportunities, for example, in social media for the kind of long-form storytelling that we do in the magazine. So... Um, I think we're reaching out to a new audience, but hopefully that audience is coming back to the magazine, and everything sort of works together in a, 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 an ecosystem for, for communicating uh, news about a field that people remain interested in, regardless of which form they're getting uh, the information in. Uh, what about your demographic, though? I mean, is it are you able to continue to pull in... Uh, the younger demographics, or specifically the people who uh, get their news and communicate daily on social media, or are you basically addressing an older group? 
I think our, our subscriber base uh, tends to be older, but the uh, you know it, it is just a couple of years that our social media push has, has become so strong. So we're Clearly. expecting that we're going to see a uh, you know a, 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 a decrease in the average age of our readership. But at the same time, you know we're fulfilling our goals if we're communicating with people and we're driving people to, the, to our website, archaeology.org, and to check out the magazine on newsstands. So I think that you know there there are trends that work in the larger sort of magazine and media world, and then there's sort of micro trends in our world um, that all that all seem positive with what we're doing. And we will be back with our discussion with uh, Samir Patel of Archaeology Magazine after these words. Please stay tuned. Don't go away. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. For 27 years, KidStar has empowered thousands of kids across the country. And now we have the opportunity to empower children around the world. KidStar is announcing a new radio show called Voyage Earth. Voyage Earth will empower kids from across the world. Kidstar has created a Kickstarter campaign just for this new undertaking. By pledging to Kickstarter, you pledge for a future of empowered people to come. My name is Raina, and I'm a producer on Voice America Kids. I want to thank you for being a backer of our Kickstarter, Voyage Earth. Kickstar, we empower kids. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we are back with a new episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. With respect to the last part of our title, 21st Century Archaeology, one of the clear uh, overriding factors that affects the dissemination of archaeological news and its distribution across a wide variety of demographics is, of course, social media. And we've been discussing with uh, Samir Patel, the science journalist and, and uh, editor of uh, Archaeology Magazine, how social media has affected the dissemination of this type of information. And specifically, I'd like to ask you, Samir, in this sec- segment, what you're seeing as being uh, stories that captivate the archaeological public and in the age of social media, how that particular vehicle actually brings particular archaeological topics into the forefront. Well, as I mentioned before, I think some of these stories that uh, 
that have emotional connections, whether it's with a descendant community or um, specific archaeologists that have some kind of emotional stake in what they're doing, uh, have always been really exciting. So I know when I started at archaeology, um, I was concerned uh, coming out of science. I went into science journalism because I have restless mind. You know, I want to write about something new every time. So I was concerned when I first came here that, you know, the subject, I'd find the subject limiting after a while. And now, eight years into my career there, I found I haven't written the story, same story twice. And so there have been a number of stories along the way that I found had, had that kind of personal connection. Um, going back to, in fact, the first story that I wrote for the magazine um, back in 2006, which was a visit to a... Uh, a site on a plantation uh, in the eastern shore of Maryland where uh, Frederick Douglass had been owned as a slave as a child. And so this was some of my first exposure, A, to archaeology in the field, but also to those personal connections because a lot of descendants from that community to which Douglass had belonged still lived in the area. Several of them came to visit the, uh, the excavation while we were there, and the team there from the University of Maryland was very invested in this kind of social archaeology uh, involving outreach to, to local people and connecting them with the history that essentially belongs to them. Um, so that, I mean, that's one example of, of, a, of a story that's got a real uh, personal aspect to it and was, was very uh, fun to report and uh, got a lot of positive response from readers. Uh, it's an interesting point. I think that we have known for a long time, especially those of us who have been in the field for uh, for decades, that um, it, archaeology in many ways is local, and yeah. that uh, that bringing that local connection to individuals, local residents who can track their lineages. Uh, back generations and to whom the archaeology actually uh, tells a, a, a very uh, direct story because they can, in fact, uh, hook themselves into the pattern and to the story that, that's that's buried underneath the ground. That's a very big, big deal right now. And I would think that social media is especially uh helpful in trying to convey those messages. And uh, I, I see the plantation story as a very, very direct one. What other examples can you give me of this kind of local archaeology being enhanced by the social media networks? Uh, well, there's a, an example that um, just the way that you described that kind of personal connection across the years. Another story that I did, this one was in 2012, um, about Blair Mountain in West Virginia, which was a mountain that was the site in 1921 of a labor conflict between miners and management, which is actually the largest civil conflict, you know, um, since the civil in the U.S. since the Civil War, um, and mm -hmm. that had actually dovetailed in a very interesting way with the modern protest community in West Virginia that's protesting against uh, mountaintop removal mining uh, of, of coal seams. So you have a group of archaeologists that are deeply invested in their uh, their home space there in West Virginia and are using this story and saving this specific mountain, the site where this took place, where there is indeed battlefield archaeology. Uh, there's, there's bullet casings and, and various things that one can use to track the course of the battle with the archaeology to save that specific mountain from, from mountaintop removal mining, which then ties back into the idea of the, the West Virginia economy and uh, jobs in that part of the country and the national perception of of Appalachian people. So that was an, that's another case where it was really. I mean, there was there was there were protests. There was everything was involved in this one story, to the point where there was deep, strong emotional content with that. Um, and that you know, a couple of these stories I'm discussing, the Maryland story, West Virginia. These are sort of predate some of our really strong social media presence, but they're the kind of stories like the Trommel and Island story that have uh, that emotional right. weight that people really latch onto. Well, this is an interesting example that you're giving us because, um, as many people know, uh, strip mining is a, an activity that is very, very directly linked 
to archaeological work and specifically to contract archaeological work because mm -hmm. it's involved with the entire compliance process, stakeholders, controversy between people who live in the region and uh, those who are uh, in many cases coming from outside of the region in support of environmental movement. Indeed. and uh, yeah. destruction. And this is really a classic case, and I'm very curious about this, because specifically in West Virginia, you have a situation where the core of the economic base is in fact mining. And mm -hmm. so you have local people, You traditionally we think of, and those of us who've studied history in, in a sense here, uh, find often a very strong conflict between people who live in the area and are most directly concerned with economic survival and yeah. have generations of families who are in fact miners. And people coming in from, in many cases, outside, although there are internal groups as well that are concerned with environmental preservation who are saying, okay, no more strip mining. How did this particular uh, episode either uh, cast off some of the images that we have or, in, in fact, uh, change them? Well, I think that one of the interesting things about this episode was that the, certainly there was uh, an external presence there, but uh, the archaeologists that are involved in, in, the, in the thing are, are local. And so there is a, there's a tremendous... It gets complicated because there's a labor... There's a strong undercurrent of labor support, obviously, in that part of the country because there was a very big deal when the when the mines unionized in the first half of, of the course. 20th century. Of and of course, but then there's the complication that mountaintop removal mining as a form actually employs far fewer people than traditional uh, sort of uh, uh, traditional mine shaft mining does. Um, so there's this inter there's this interaction between people wanting to support the coal industry purely, but people wanting to support the economy in a way that's not as extractive as, as mountaintop removal mining is, because a lot of the people see that as a particularly damaging to the health, welfare, and economy of West Virginia, even though it is still part of the coal industry. So there is a lot of, of subtlety there, but the, the key point being that the archaeologists involved in studying the Blair Mountain site are indeed local and indeed deeply uh, associated with the labor movement. So there's a careful balance that I, as a journalist, obviously had to strike between uh, sort of understanding this uh, without necessarily being an advocate, but, but presenting uh, this entire complex story in a way that readers can um, read the whole thing and, and make their own judgments. And the story, uh, it's called Mountaintop Rescue, uh, and it's about the Battle of Blair Mountain. It's also it's available on our website as well. Interesting. That was another issue that uh, I think uh, would be a very major concern to archaeologists, and that is specifically the politicization of archaeology itself, because a lot of the issues that especially compliance archaeologists get involved with mm -hmm. are clearly have overtones that are political, that uh, put... Uh, to 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 loggerheads, really, the interests of, of stakeholders and the government, which has mandated in the Section 106 process and in a variety of different other uh, compliance statutes, uh, pitting uh, preservation interests against against economics, like in this particular case. What are some of the more interesting cases that you've been following in the past uh, few years, and have you brought them to Archaeology Magazine and, and elicited interest in that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, outside of, the, of this story, I can't say that I'm an, an, an expert in compliance archaeology or the... Um, you know the 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 interaction of of politicization of archaeology and the actual practice of it. So um, there, there, I mean, to my knowledge, there haven't been that many other stories that we've done independent of this one. And there was an earlier story, another labor conflict in Colorado, which is actually before my time, um, that that brought that right. to light. But these these are, I mean, prickly thorny issues, and we have, um, you know, it's difficult for us uh, issue to issue to decide on what to include, because there is so much fantastic work out there. It's always a challenge and always um, sort of painful for us to have to make those decisions on, on what we go with and what we don't. What are the real popular items right now? You had mentioned Egypt. Uh, what about human evolution and creationism? Um, well, I don't think we ever address creationism. Uh, certainly the, the paleoanthropology stories that we've done in the past um, 
about uh, Neanderthal genetics. These sorts of things have consistently been popular. In fact, one of our top ten items this past year was the uh, was the work on the Neanderthal epigenome. Um, right. which is actually determining the, the, the on-off switches within the Neanderthal genome that distinguish us from them, which is um, some fascinating work and some complex science involved. And that one continues to attract a tremendous uh, public awareness. And, and as, as the uh, story of, of the evolutionary trees is constantly being revised, I imagine that that's a thread that would pull in a number of people. But like you say, uh, it's a little bit outside of your domain because it's more physical anthropology. Uh, what recent discoveries, I imagine, are, are pretty big at this point. I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? I'm sorry, recent discoveries are probably pretty big at this point. Um, and I assume they capture, capture the imagination of a lot of people. Yeah, is yeah. That, and, uh, and is the, that something? One of the challenges that leads to with us when we talk about recent discoveries is just how much technology and other sciences go into the, uh, the coverage that we present in the magazine. I mean, covering archaeology is different than covering a lot of different fields because you have biology, genetics, chemistry, material science, all being something that us as editors and writers have to be um, versed and familiar with to be able to uh, engage those other scientists on them as well. And by the same token, there's social sciences, linguistics, history, um, comparative mythology. These are all things we also have to be up to speed on in order to, to, to bring the, 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 the storytelling aspects of archaeology to our readers. And that's a really interesting point that you bring up because it's a field in which interdisciplinary cooperation has become increasingly more sophisticated Indeed. and highly technical and highly technological. How are you able to bring all these disciplines together in a way that people don't roll their eyes and say, my God, this is all technological gobbledygook? You have to sort of you have to sort of retain sort of a pedestrian interest in this sort of thing, and at the same time convey the message that uh, you will not understand any of this stuff unless you look at it from a scientific and technological point of view. I think it requires a tremendous amount of skill in trying to convey that in a literary sense. Yeah, indeed, I, that's, assume... I mean that's something that we struggle with. Um... I wouldn't say struggle with something we deal with every issue is how to present this piece of science in a way that's going to be comprehensible and 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 how are we going to then bring that back to the archaeology story that we're telling? Um, interesting, interesting because and I you know pardon me for 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 bringing this one in but but mm -hmm. I know that within the professional community it requires a tremendous amount of skill to be able to bring this to a level where uh, actually people who need to know about these things can understand them because uh, it's, it's all well and good to project this kind of information and make it comprehensible to people who are in the field. But to bring that to a broader public and to, uh, to get the most, um, the most sophisticated types of ideas to a point where uh, people in the lay community can understand them is a very hard thing, which brings me to the question of how do you mobilize uh, writers and editors to uh, participate and become part of your uh, magazine? Right, indeed. Well, we have a group of, of, of writers um, who are staples in our pages, who, we, who we've worked with for a long time, who know archaeology style and are very good at this exact kind of communication you're talking about. Um, when it comes to getting new writers and new stories in, um, we take pitches from professional journalists um, and sometimes from, from, well, uh, from good writing archaeologists uh, as well. So we get, we get those pitches in. We also sometimes will look for the right writer uh, for a piece, maybe someone who's written about a related topic before in another publication. Um, so it's, it's definitely a challenge to get people. I mean, there's a lot of people who engage in science journalism broadly, but the population of writers that do it very well, which is the ones that we're looking for, uh, is, a, is a smaller population. So it's, it's, an, it's an ongoing challenge to find the right people for our stories. But we also have a very experienced and dedicated staff of editors here who um, 
I mean, we have sort of decades among us uh, of working specifically with archaeology. Um, a couple of us are actually, arche- not myself, but a couple are, are archaeologists, and a couple come from the world of science journalism. So there's a really um, deep well of of knowledge of of archaeology as a field and of journalism as a craft. And those are the kind of skills we got to bring to bear every time we you know, look at a pitch from a new writer or uh, assess whether a story uh, is right for us to pursue. And on that note, we're going to segue into another break. We will be back with our special guest, um, Samir Patel, and uh, discussing Archaeology Magazine and its particular take on the, wor- on the world of archaeology after these words don't go away. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein back with uh, our final segment on this very unique edition of Indiana Jones Myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology. We are speaking to one of the editors of uh, Archaeology Magazine, which is one of the longer standing professional publications that has the uh, difficult and very successful record of conveying uh, discoveries in archaeology to a more general and broader public. Samir, one of the questions that that I think a lot of people would like to get familiar with is how do you bring together uh, all these authors and how do you put the magazine together and how do you make that fantastic combination of stories, interests, appropriate writers, illustrations and into uh, uh, such a successful magazine that has really a very long history and a very revered uh, place in this profession? Well, first off, thank you for the kind words about the magazine. Um, every you know, every two months when we uh, when we put one of these together, we always look back on it and are wondering, wow, like, look at the 
range of stuff we managed to put together here. And, you know, it's a combination of the, uh, you know, the experience of the staff and our writers. Um, and what we do sort of each issue is, is and on an ongoing basis, because we don't necessarily go issue to issue, but we're, you know, thinking out ahead in the future is we have our pitches from writers. Us as the editors are looking at, at, uh, at stories that we want to do. We're looking at the archaeology, uh, the news, uh, how that's portrayed the science science news has portrayed different archaeology stories we talk we read the journals we talk to our sources are there archaeologists who can often turn us on to what they think is interesting in the field and so we take this collection of of ideas of publications of things and and then look at how they fit into the structure of the existing uh, magazine that, that that we've developed and so there's different places for different kinds of stories we have the front of our magazine, which is called From the Trenches, and this is shorter news pieces. That's accompanied by World Roundup, which is even shorter news pieces. And then we have, you know, five to six large-scale features in every issue. Um, and those take different forms, too. Some of them are, are long narratives. Some of them are heavily pictorial. Um, some of them are really uh, have a strong sense of place. And they were, there's, we have another section toward the back of the magazine called Letter From, which is often a very place-specific kind of feature story. Um, and so we, we take and, and discuss among ourselves where, where we think these, uh, a particular story might fit into, where we, uh, into how we structure the magazine and the reading experience for readers. And these are all things that are on our minds as we're putting it together. Um, so one of our packages that we do every year, and it's it's actually out on newsstands now, and it's consistently our you know one of our most, if not most, popular issue and feature of the year is the top ten discoveries of the year, where we as editors meet together and we discuss what we think is the um, most uh, interesting, eye-opening, uh, important uh, discoveries in the course of a year. And we have different uh, uh, ways that we decide what we're going to use. Some of them are the the stories that really have a, a large, wide impact in the field. Um, you know, for example, last year, the, the discovery of the remains of Richard III, or um, this year, the, uh, the, 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 the scans, the analysis of the, of the landscape surrounding Stonehenge. And some of them are stories that we think are certainly really important that maybe didn't get covered as widely, um, such as the... Uh, in this year's issue, the uh, excavations at Lumbini in Nepal, which is uh, the, supposedly the birthplace of, of the Buddha and uh, the succession of temples that were built on that site that's giving a whole new insight into the early years of Buddhism. And then sometimes we pick out stories that we just like, that we find quirky or intriguing or think that readers are going to connect with. And so there's always a, a real um, interesting range of kinds of stories in that top ten. And in a way, it, it kind of functions as a microcosm of what we like to do as the magazine, which is cover the world and essentially cover the whole of human history when we can. And, and you bring us back full circle, really, to uh, what we had started talking about earlier in the program, which is really what are the sorts of topics that captivate the readership? And you had mentioned this very popular component of, of the magazine, which is the top 10 discoveries of the year. Mm -hmm. So my next question is really twofold. What are they for this year? And how do you see those top 10 discoveries? And how do you see the interests changing over the course of time? For example, what might have been popular 10 years ago? thematically, for example, uh, which is not popular as much today, and how do you see that evolving through time? Uh, first, mm -hmm. well, let's start with what are, the, what, are, what are the hot items this year, and then let's put it into some kind of a historical perspective and look at, at what the changing interests are among the population as, uh, uh, as we go through time, say, from the uh, later 20th century back in, into the 21st first century. I know that's a lot to ask, but I'm just curious about that. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll do what I can. So this year's top 10 um, includes uh, the discovery of a 13,000-year-old remains in a Mexican cenote that were named Naya that have some sort of impact in understanding the relationship between Paleo-Americans and modern Native Americans. Um, there's the uh, uh, Viking fortress in Denmark that may have been the uh, Fortress of Harold Bluetooth Gormson, a very uh, famous um, Viking leader. There's evidence, and this is a, one of the more uh -huh. um, interesting science stories, of um, mummification well earlier, 1,500 years earlier than previously thought, um, 
but from an analysis of the, the linen wrappings on uh, certain uh, Egyptian um, mummies. There's, um, and here's one of these sort of uh, kind of quirky stories that we like, a, a Byzantine basilica in Lake Iznik in Turkey that was sitting right under the nose of, of, of people for ages and no one had noticed it. And now there's these really beautiful, clear photographs of the, the foundation of this basilica just below the, the lake's waters. Um, there's one of uh, my favorite stories because I'm uh, personally partial to shipwrecks, the discovery of um, HMS Erebus, one of the uh, uh, Franklin expedition ships that was looking for the Northwest Passage. And this, is, this was a big story, so big, in fact, that it was announced by Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper um, when the, the ship was found and identified. Um, as I mentioned, the, uh, the Neanderthal epigenome, um, the excavations um, on the origins of Buddhism in Lumbini, Nepal, the uh, right. large Greek tomb at Amphipolis in Greece, which was, I mean, it seemed like that was reported in real time. There was a, a, every day there was a new news story about what they were finding as they were opening this, this massive tomb. Um, the uh, the uh, ground-penetrating radar and other remote-sensing scans around Stonehenge that revealed countless um, new features that they did not know were there. And uh, a massive coin hoard in Devon, England, the Seton Down hoard, includes 22,000 coins and is going to tell a lot about uh, uh, coinage in the, uh, the 80, from 8260 to 340 or so. So these are the stories that we picked this year as the most intriguing sort of top 10 stories. And that, that list, like I said, can be found in the latest issue of Archaeology and online as well. So this, and second, going back or, into the archives, is there a, a theme, or uh, 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 as as time marches on, of uh, t- stories that are now popular that may not have been capturing the imaginations of the readership, say, ten, twenty years ago? That's an interesting question. I I don't feel like I've seen a trend like that. You know, the stories have obviously evolved because. Um, you know, uh, some years ago, we might have been writing about, uh, uh, with, with regard to Neanderthals, for example, about a specific uh, Neanderthal uh, skeleton or artifact or something like that. And now we're writing about something that, honestly, we may not have imagined five or ten years ago, which would be understanding the, not just the genetic code, but the instructions for that genetic code, the epigenome. So obviously the, the nature of the stories have evolved. In terms of what really appeal to people, I think there are things with really enduring appeal so, like I mentioned, mummification is one. The peopling of the Americas is another. I mean, these are topics that are going to come up in the top ten repeatedly because they're things that are always resonating with uh, with our readership and with the public. Interesting. And uh, what about going forward? How do you see the co- content and the dissemination of the the magazine going forward? And how will social media impact the direction of what archaeology is and is going to be going forward? Well, it's interesting. I think that the the way that people, and this is not necessarily archaeology-specific, but just thinking about uh, publishing in general, that the the social media and the Internet have in some ways um, perhaps fundamentally altered the way people consume information. And to some extent, then, that reflects a little bit in what we do in the magazine in terms of, uh, of doing packages like, like Top Ten or the story we did a couple issues ago on the Nevada test site or uh, an issue before that on um, Chinatowns in America where, where there's, there's, there's smaller pieces, multiple points of entry for people. So I think that in some ways uh, magazine editors are indeed internalizing some of the lessons they're, we're learning from the way that people consume social media. But I think that... That notwithstanding, print and long-form journalism are going to continue to be relevant, and the social media component, it's, it's maturing. It's going to continue to mature to the point that people understand the role that it plays in disseminating this kind of information, um, whereas three or four years ago, I don't think people in, in the magazine industry knew what, what, what it was going to mean. I think as, as an industry, we're starting to understand it. Um, I think we're going to see that, that uh, increasingly discoveries in the lab are just as important as discoveries in the field, and we're going to continue to report on those in the best sort of manner of storytelling that we can. Um, so I think that some of the features of the medium will change, but the, the core appeal of archaeology, um, the thing that, that 
that people connect with is, is, is going to be the same. It's going to always going to be there. And you see this going forward, and uh, I guess some change has to occur, obviously, but you're seeing that archaeology will continue to consume, consume human interest, if, if we can put it that way, and that um, our fascination with what's buried and what's underneath the ground will continue to uh, capture the imagination of people. And you mentioned Storytelling is a major issue. I think that in this age of not only social media but high technology, the direct contact and, and, and sort of that intimacy that one gets from a, a good storyteller or linking an artifact to uh, a reality that existed in the past is something that almost has to be rediscovered. You know, uh, in in a world in which media is so pervasive and technology sort of uh, distances ourselves, distances us from from actually the human experience and the, the 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 continuity of the human experience. Do you find that as being something that that people find uh, critical that they want to experience a, a sort of a more direct continuity with heritage and 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 uh, with their forebears? Uh, it, it may be the case that that may be part of the explanation why these these, these emotional these personal stories tend to uh, get a lot of traction online because they're when we when I say we start out uh, you know with the stuff with the dirt with the objects with the material it means our our stories are, are grounded in that kind of reality and so I think that that kind of thing is is always going to be appealing so the appeal of the humanly touched thing, the appeal of a good story well told, uh, these are, are maybe perhaps people do need to rediscover them a little bit, but I think these are, these are enduring themes that uh, we're going to continue to try to deliver in the pages of archaeology, and the field as a whole will always have as an asset, because archaeology, done rigorously, always lends itself to this kind of storytelling. Uh, and our, 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 we have the great uh, pleasure an opportunity to be able to uh, to interact with the field on a daily basis. And you're finding that your readership is holding pretty strong, and that you're appealing to the young as well as the new. Indeed, the the readership of the magazine has held strong. The readership online has, as I mentioned, increased greatly. Um, so I think that in in that alone, you can see that there is a a a, a trending uh, younger in the in the audience that we're appealing to. Yeah. And on that note, I would like to thank my special guest, Samir Patel, who is the editor of Archaeology Magazine, and I wish you all the best, and I know all of us in the professional and in the lay communities are very excited about the direction that the magazine is taking, and that it's a reflection really on where we are going in terms of social media and broader print media, and thank you very much for appearing. Thank you for having me, Joe. I appreciate it. Okay. And we will be back next week with another episode. Thank you for listening and stay well. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.